Final Watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts, and my co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, calling in all the way from Amsterdam. Today, it's time for us to dive back into the mailbag and answer some of our listeners' most burning questions. Good morning, Alan. How are you today? Good morning, buddy. And this is the official first episode of 2023, so Happy New Year. How are you looking forward to this year? Well, it's a very exciting year. I think I've been saying for the last five years at the start of every year, this is going to be my year. You know, I don't actually say things like that, but you know, the the standard uh, thought process occurs like, oh, wow, so many exciting things are lining up. And the real time show is obviously top of that list. All the adventures that we have ahead of us with brands and with events and traveling and building the show and increasing the following, that's something I can't wait for. And my endeavors with Arcanaut as well. I've got a couple of books that I've got to write in the meantime. So it's going to be uh, uh, full on, a lot of traveling as usual, but um, I couldn't ask for any better, really. What about you? I'm super excited about this year. A lot of cool stuff in uh, the pipeline. Already five collabs confirmed with Ace and a few more that might materialize. So super excited about that. And I want to pause for a moment and thank all our listeners because we only started two months plus ago but it seems we've been doing quite some time we had amazing guests so thank you to them and especially a big shout out to all our listeners because the downloads are way surpassing our expectations the feedback is tremendous i really enjoy recording them getting the questions in answering them the feedback that's going on afterwards so I'm really, really grateful for that. So I think that for the real-time show, this is our year. Um, I woke up this morning and I saw the new amazing novelties that were launched during the LVMH Watch Week 2023 taking place in Singapore. So while you're listening to this, this is uh, the 11th of January, and they started uh, releasing the first novelties of this year. Aorus is not at that fair, but also launched a new caliber. So it promises to be a fun year. Yeah, the watchmaking industry is kicked off with a bang, a big bang, one might say. Talking of LVMH Watch Week, uh, we have had a question come in already regarding the new releases. And our listener, Christina from Texas, contacted you via IG. She says, what do you think of a new watch that's launched at LVMH Watch Week 2023 and which one stood out to you and why? So I'll, I'll kick that one over to you because this is what greeted your eyes when you opened them this morning. Which watches are top of the list so far? So, Christina, thank you so much. You, you dropped that DM in my uh, Instagram inbox. I'm like, why are you awake so early <laughs> or late for that matter? Why don't you go to bed yet? But she is actually a hardcore collector. So... Um, it's actually a very dense fair because LVMH only puts four watch brands forward, although they make more watches like, for example, Louis Vuitton watches, but they're not there. So at that fair is Bulgari, Hublot, Tag Heuer, and Zenith. And I think I did that in alphabetical order. So all of them launched their watches on Instagram. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Carrera. This year is the 60th anniversary and they actually made a rather true to original relaunch of the watch that Jack Hoyer made in 1963 for the Pan-American race 
um, and for the drivers. Um, so I guess that's my personal favorite. And since you're a lady, I have to give a shout out to a lady's watch, which is the Bulgari Serpenti. They made actually a very cool piece in gold that is uh, has a bit of stardust in the shape of diamonds on the case. Um, Rob, did you have time to look? And if not, maybe have a quick scroll because that's shotgun picking. I'm very curious what stood out for you. Oh, I had a chance to look. and. Um... The choices for me were quite easy. There's two models, both from the same brand, that really stand out. And and a third one that deserves an, I'm not sure, honorable mention is really the way to put it, but at least a dishonorable mention. Um, the brand I've chosen is Hublot. And I will start with my second favorite watch from this release. And that is the Hublot Big Bang Tourbillon Yellow Neon Saxon, which on paper is kind of like the worst possible watch in the world for me and for many other more conservative collectors but as you know i have a an incredibly soft spot for hublot and the brand's material sciences and this saxon material which stands for sapphire aluminium oxide uh, and rare earth mineral if you would like to know is uh, an alloy of aluminium oxide um, which is you know the foundational component of sapphire and it has other elements like chromium uh, holmium and thulium included in it which allows the brand to create these incredible brightly colored in, in this case almost fluorescent colored sapphire cases and this one's totally um, see-through with this um, almost uranium-esque tint to it it's yellow i suppose yellow green and uh, it's gorgeous and terrifying and all the things that are right and wrong with watchmaking at once, I guess. Uh, I love it. I, I'm not a huge Torbjorn fan, but this is the kind of watch where you should have a Torbjorn on full display. It's a skeletonized movement, no dial, floating Arabic numerals at the 2, 4, 8, and 10 position, a micro rotor at 12 o'clock, decorated with a Hublot wordmark. It's just fantastically on brand. And yeah, um, Somewhere between a dream and a nightmare, maybe both simultaneously. I absolutely love it. It's only 200,000 francs. So if you've got that kind of cash burning the hole in your pocket, pop down to Singapore where they're holding this event and buy one. 50 pieces limited, so <laughs> get a move on. Uh, uh, the top piece, oh, well, I'll reserve it actually until I, I mention my dishonorable mention. That's the Hublot Big Bang Integrated King Gold Rainbow, which takes the ostentation of the Rolex Rainbow Daytona um from goodness knows when was that that was 15 no 10 years ago i guess 11 years ago 2012 i think that came out and uh, it takes it to the next level here we have not just a rainbow diamond bezel and rainbow diamond markers but also a rainbow diamond bracelet and goodness knows how long it took to set all those stones but it is a work of art let's say um it's uh <laughs> actually uh, only between 150 and 160,000 francs. I say only in comparison to the Saxon model I just mentioned, of course, depending on whether you want the time only or the chronograph version, because clearly the movement itself is not what is important here. It's that immense uh, number of diamonds. Number one, though, is far simpler, and that's the Hublot Classic Fusion Original 38mm, or even in 33mm, just in beautiful yellow gold. And it's a almost plain black dial with a Hublot 
logo and word mark and date in a white on black date wheel at three o'clock. And it is just class, to be honest. It's not got very impressive movement. It's uh, the sort of basic automatic HEB1110, which is a Salita SW301 modification. But yeah, that's the choice for me. It sounds ridiculous, but that is the one I would pick. And it prices start from 7,500 francs for that series. Very, very interesting that you picked that because we've received a question about Hublot, which I find a very good and interesting question. So, should we? Pick that one out of the mailbag. Wow, look at this. First episode of 2023, and we finally become professional podcasters. We haven't even had to edit this show yet. So go ahead, yeah. Our dear friend and a great supporter, Christopher Diedrichtsen, and I hope I pronounced that well, sent on Instagram DM to you, why is Hublot frowned upon by collectors? I think they make cool stuff, but I've never held one in my hands. But whenever they are mentioned, I always hear, oh, that's just crap. And you know what? <laughs> wow, <laughs> strong. <laughs> well, but, 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 but he's right. There is so much, I call it, there's so many player haters out there. There are people that bash on Hublot and I personally won't buy one but i have a lot of respect for the old hublot so mr crocos hublot i have i love what jean-claude biver did and i love what they're still doing and what you just mentioned that 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 sexum yellow thing is so cool that and they push the envelope on innovation that i don't know why they're bashed on so I'm going to ask you first, and then I'll say why I think that people bash on them, and then I'll say why I think they are cool. Well, for me, um, I, I guess I guess the reason why people bash on them is, is, is obvious. Uh, they are big, brash, in your face. And as I alluded to with the Saxon, the worst parts of watchmaking, as well as I think some of the best. And that's just that horrendous uh, braggadocio that goes along with these expensive, normally footballer or rapper-oriented pieces. That's understandable. And that is really why so many people are turned off by Hublot before they have chance to delve deeper into the collection and to look into what kind of stuff actually goes into the brand behind the scenes and before they have a chance to appreciate that were it not for brands like Hublot, which I regard as like the Formula One level watch brands in the industry, we would not have many other things filtering down to affordable levels and, and brought to life in more demure and wearable packages, shall we say. So there's a lot of high-tech stuff like ceramic experimentation and sapphire experimentation, different types of Kevlar, different types of gold alloys, use of rare elements that go into the creation of Hublot watches, which doesn't get the press that it deserves. And to shine a light on some specific examples of those things I just mentioned. We have, of course, this Saxon material. There's the Texalium, which is a kind of textile aluminium weave, which we've seen on some special editions brought to us by Lapo Elkan, the heir of the Fiat car company in Italy, who's a partner of Hublot, as well as Harrods, produced a special edition camo 
version of their King Gold Big Bang chronograph using Texelium. There is Magic Gold, which is an almost unscratchable gold and carbon alloy, which I adore for its aesthetic. It's kind of muddy brown, slightly golden aesthetic and uh, almost indestructibility. I've seen squid ink-infused Kevlar in the foundry of Hublot in Neon being worked on and tried. they were trying to transform it into a case. I'm not sure if they ever really succeeded in doing what they wanted, but it was fascinating to watch anyway. And the use of osmium in dials, which of course hit the headlines last year with the release of a Chepek Antarctic Frozen Star model, which was one of the standout pieces of 2022. And many people thought Chepek were the first brand to ever use osmium in a dial, but Chapek rather humbly acknowledged that they weren't because Hublot had tried it at least, and there may even be others that have attempted it. But um, yeah, the, a lot of this work goes on behind the scenes, and what people take away from the brand is the blush pink big bang on Kylian Mbappe's wrist, which personally I think is cool enough anyway, but doesn't leave a very palatable taste in most people's mouths. So that's why I love the brand. That's why I think it deserves attention. And that's why I think that it has a place in the, in the industry that it will continue to justify for many years to come. What about you? That's actually a very cool analysis and a summary. I guess that the hardcore collectors might bash on Hublot. And that's a guess, yeah? That they call them Royal Oak ripoffs, maybe. Um, they can't discount the manufacture capacity, their in-house skills, and definitely they can't bash them on innovation. Um, we could call it maybe pop art of the watchmaking, the high-end spectrum. Um, a, a, a quick intermezzo, would you buy and wear one yourself, Rob? And if so, which one? I absolutely would buy and wear one. And uh, which one is a very good question because I... I have wanted to become a Hublot customer for many, many years, ever since I was a watchmaker. In fact, this is embarrassing to admit, and I'm quite ashamed of it, to be honest. But when I was training to become a watchmaker, I understandably had no money whatsoever. And I bought a fake Hublot Big Bang from, uh, oh, what was it? AliExpress or Alibaba, one of these platforms. And it was a, a rose gold, <laughs> rose gold colored um, big bang with a white dial and a white rubber strap. And it was about, I don't know, 45, 47 millimeters. And it was absolutely preposterous. And it had a cheap uh, Seiko NH35 or something like that in it and fake sub dials. And oh God, I don't know what I was thinking, but um, the desire was there. The desire still burns within me to own one. And which model? Okay. Well, it probably comes down to four models off the top of my head. Um, I really did love the Texalium green camo king gold chronograph released for Harrods. Now, I'm sure they're all sold out, so I'd have to get one on a pre-owned marker, but I'm pretty sure that they pop up every so often. It was about £20,000, £25,000, I think, but I'd assume that it had gone down on the secondary market because it's not the sort of model that tends to appreciate. I would also like um, maybe the white ceramic big bang on the bracelet because I think it's the most ceramic-y ceramic watch you get. And if you're going to go for a company like Hublot, you should buy the best of type, in my opinion, and that's a great ambassador for that whole sphere of technology. 
I very much like the new Classic Fusion 38mm yellow gold that I referenced this morning as my pick from LVMH because I think that that really takes the essence of Hublot, which I believe is French for porthole. I think that's what the bezel shape is inspired by um, very seriously. And that just is uh, a great ambassador for the brand on the wrist while being a demure and wearable dress watch that I would very gladly wear to swanky events, should I ever be invited to them. And the last one is probably the choice. It would be the uh, Magic Gold uh, GMT, because Magic Gold is my favorite material that Hublot's ever made. It may not be the most striking. It's not as arresting as the ceramic. It's not as visually interesting as the Texalium. It's not as refined as Yellow Gold, but it is hella cool. So I'd say that one, yeah, the GMT Magic Gold. Cool. Yeah, so okay, that's interesting to hear. And 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 you've actually mentioned something that I think we can dedicate a whole episode to, which we should, the topic of fake watches. And I'll stop there and reserve it. Um and, and we should talk about it. Um actually very interesting. So yeah, I would pick the classic fusion original and actually also the one they launched today with the clean, clean dial. Um I think that was very cool. And I don't know why people would hate on them. Um, I would actually would love to hear comments from our listeners why they don't like Hublot. Um, and, and we won't judge that. It's, it's, I love the fact that everybody loves something different, right? We don't need to love everything the same. And if I had 200K lying around spare, I would go to the other end of the spectrum and the Hublot spectrum. And I would go for an MP09, a tourbillon bi-axis. 3D, in carbon, going crazy in 49 millimeters. And the case looks like a skull to me. But um, I think those things are very cool. So that's the, the, the duality in me. Understandable. Yeah, it's okay to have both those things existing within oneself at the same time, I think. And it's very rare that one can find a single watch that pulls all of one's interests together so perfectly. And that segues nicely to the next question. That we have, and we're staying with our Scandinavian listeners. This is from Sana Grancio in uh, Stockholm, and she says, "What is your?" And this is an in inverted commas. This watch is a ten out of ten, but watch. So, to explain, she means which complication or design choice is an absolute no go, and could make you not buy a watch, even if you'd even if you thought everything else about it was absolutely perfect. So is there something, you can give me an example of a watch that either is perfect, but for one thing, or an example of maybe a watch that would be perfect if it had something else added to it. Wow. Good question. Cool question, actually. Um, If I had to do this with a gun to my head and mention something very quickly, I guess Lange. And almost all of them, I love them. And maybe the biggest reason why I still don't own one is Roman numerals. <laughs> so. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's just one little aspect. That's I simple. love, yeah, I love almost everything about Lange. And almost every model. And I, I really want one. And my wife really wants to get me one as well, which is rare because. We don't agree more than half of the time on watches we like for each other. Um, 
So I guess that's my first thing I would mention. Um, I, I don't know what it, what it is with me and Roman numerals. We're actually now doing an extreme cool deep dive within Team Ace while we're working on a collab for this year with Roman numerals. So that might be the first watch I will ever buy with Roman numerals. You're telling me that you, you don't have a single Roman numeral watch in your entire collection? Not one. Hmm. I've tried. I, I've owned the Ulysse Nardin Torpilleur very briefly. I've never done Cartier. My lo- wife loves and owns several Cartiers, but and 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 on her, I love it, and it works with the tank. And I'm actually hunting down a Tortue for her, and that has Roman numerals as well. But I myself can't strap them on. You know what? Um, I don't think I've got any either. <laughs> oh, why? The, but you know what? No, no, wait, I'm lying, I'm lying, I'm lying. I've got, I'm lying as well. I've got two Namos clubs, and you've got Namos clubs as well. Oh, dude, yeah. But, but, but those are California dials, Byzantium dials, and those are super cool. And I'm lying because oh, I'm looking yeah, at my yeah. desk, and my Furlan Mari is lying on my desk. Oh, yeah. And it has the 12 and 6 in Roman. I got one of those as well, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you know what, guys? I'm full of it. Sorry. I... Uh, <laughs> you know what, though? You know what? That's, that's actually, it's, it's maybe no more complicated than what my answer is about to be. Um, maybe, uh, maybe even less. But it's a really, really good point. And I was, in my younger years, convinced that Roman numerals were the only way to go. And that was a phase that didn't last very long, I must admit, and has not even come close to overtaking my love for Arabic or just straight up indices uh, ever since. But I am starting to feel myself pulled back towards the gross Gordon Gecko glory of Roman numerals. And that will lead us on to the next question once I've given my answer to this one. But um, I do think these things go in cycles. And I was looking the other day, not at old Breitling chronomats, but at old Breitling cockpits which, you know, that there was a phase of cockpits in the early 2000s, I think, uh, maybe to the early teens, where cockpits looked like chronomats or looked like we imagine old chronomats to look like. And there was one that had the 12, 9, 6 chrono configuration, black dial, I think maybe black subdials, but polished, applied gold Roman numerals and really elongated as well, tall ones, thin ones should be horrible, but it just smacked so much of Tony Montana or Sylvester Stallone or I, I, I don't know, like, yeah, the Tony Montana is, is what I thought of, like a just drug lord, just like a, a, a mental, like machine gun toting drug maniac in 1997 in Miami. And I was like, oh, that's a cool look. I, I, I didn't ever think I wanted to pull that look off, but with that watch on my wrist, maybe I could with a wide collared shirt. and. um I can't deny. I thought it was lovely. And when I, when I had this newfound obsession, I shared it with my former teammates at Fratello and they all laughed me out of the building. And I said, just watch your space. The 90s is coming back. But we'll get onto that in a moment. My answer to this question is very simple. It's the color of a dial. Um, 
My favourite purchase of 2022, as we discussed on a previous show, was the Glassiter Original 70s Chronograph Panorama Date with a vibing orange dial, which is one of the limited edition models from 2022. They did the vibing orange, which is this kind of emergency orange colour and a, a bright electric blue dial. And I have loved that model in theory ever since Ariel Adams bought one, I don't know, five or six years ago. Uh, he got the standard uh, blue sunburst style from the regular collection. And in those days, I couldn't afford to buy that piece. And had I had the money at the time, I would have bought the Forest Green Sunburst Limited Edition that came out a few years back. And ever since, I've been waiting, just waiting patiently for a color interesting or versatile enough to come out. And the bright orange is both interesting and surprisingly versatile because it goes with absolutely nothing. So it can be worn with everything. And when it came out, I, I asked the question if I could possibly get one. And I did. And that's ridiculous because that watch d- deserves to be taken seriously on more than just the color of its dial. But there you go. That's uh, that, that was my answer. That was the perfect 10 out of 10 watch. Interesting, Rob. So uh, while I'm listening to you, um, I've been thinking about that we recently got two day dates in stock, Rolex day dates. And it's the new 36 in platinum, but that still has the old Roman numerals done by Rolex and a 40 in red gold with a chocolate dial. And I don't know if you recall that dial. It's a more modern font type. I think they designed it, Rolex. It's a bit slanted, so italic. and. Um, they opened it up a bit, so it, it gives it a, 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 a modern look. And that's, that's when I said, ooh, I mean, who doesn't want one day at least to wear for one day a gold day date on his wrist? And then I said, ooh, that's the first time that I like Roman numerals. So, so that's me. But to answer the question, there's hardly any complication that turns me off uh colors are not make or break for me it can do a lot but not like you it can turn me completely off so there's not much that that really sets me off although yesterday i sold a jejal lecoultre master compressor uh ceramic 46 stunning piece but small old chronograph caliber which is an amazing in-house caliber but there was so much air between the if you would make a circle around the chrono subdials and the out, outer rings going to the flange and the bezel. And, and then you know that the movement is way smaller than the case. They blew it up. And that's something that turns me kind of off. But, okay. It's like we're at the watch psychiatrist here. Um, let's go to the next one. Rob, do you want to take the next one? Yeah, I will ask you the question. And I am very eager to hear your answer because this kind of leads on from what I was saying about the rebirth of 1990s style. Currently, we got a great question from Walter in Amsterdam. Now, it's a big question. It's a four-parter, really, and we're only going to address part one of it today. He asks, what is the best design of... Seriously, he's asking us what the best design of A, the 90s, B, the noughties, C, the 2010s, and D, recent years, is or are. And we can't approach all of these in one episode, I don't think, because that would just probably take up the entire hour. So what we'll do is we'll do one per episode for the next four episodes. And today it is the turn 
of the 1990s. So Alon, I pitch this question to you. And I would like to know, what do you think the best design of the 1990s is? Well, thank you, Wouter. Uh, good question. Um, I know it, it occupies a lot of your, your mind space, these, these topics, and we philosophize a lot about this, he and I. Um, I kind of know what he likes. Um, I find it actually not that easy to answer because the 80s were very volatile. Um, after the quartz crisis, 85, we kind of, 83, 4, 5, you saw Swatch coming up, G-Shock coming up. Um, uh, Breitling bring, reviving under the helm of Schneiders with the chronomat. We see IWC bringing out the Da Vinci done by Kurt Klaus, groundbreaking. Uh, IWC does ceramic cases. The Porsche design era comes to an end at the beginning of the 1990s. I even believe it is 1990 where they stopped the collab. Um, so I literally have to rack my brain. Uh, I think that the Seamaster 300M Diver, nicknamed the James Bond by Omega, was launched. Very cool, but is not, in my opinion, the best design of the 90s. If I think design, I think of the Nomos. Nomos got revived or actually founded in the 90s. It's an old name, but the Tangente is a very true Glashütter watch design. I know other brands had it, like Elang and Cerner. But then they really got going, designed amazing new things. So I guess I have to go with Nomos. That's my vote, if I think about it now. Rob, I'm very curious what yours is or are. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Um, maybe it's not a surprise, given our love of German watches and also the incredible transformation that country experienced during the decade of the 90s but my choice hails from not just the same town as yours but about 50 meters across the road and in fact the story of my brand began in the house that is now the Nomos boutique in Glasseter and so for anyone that doesn't know I'm talking about Lange and Zerner and Lange and Zerner was the first brand founded in Glasseter in 1845 178 years ago now, so I'm sure we'll be seeing some 178th year celebrations from the brands in Glasseter throughout 2023, because it's a significant number apparently. And um, Langer brought watchmaking to the area to replace its former specialization, which was silver mining. Um, the mountains that surround Glasseter, the ore mountains, were once full of silver seams, which were mined almost to extinction. And so the King of Saxony needed to find someone to bring something new to that area. Langer stepped up to the plate. And that company existed all the way up until the occupation of the Soviets following the Second World War and the division of Germany into four separate parts. The Soviets part, of course, ended up behind the wall and every company in Glasseter became part of the GUB, which was a state-owned watchmaking facility. 
Langer was consumed into the GUB and didn't exist in its own right again until it was refounded by a then 66-year-old Walter Langer in 1990. However, it wasn't until 1994 that Langer actually released its first new watch, and it did so with a series of timepieces, the most notable and memorable of which is probably the Langer 1. So my choice from the 90s is a particular iteration of the Langer 1, and it is one that came out four years after the Langer One's debut in 1998 under the reference number Langer 1A112.021. Now this, to me, is not only the most, let's say, important watch model of the 1990s, but also the most 1990s execution thereof. This has got a yellow gold case, <laughs> a... Uh, a nice yellow gold dial, which has been gear shade. Thanks to it having a yellow gold dial, it's a little bit thicker than the standard Langer one. It's actually, uh, I think it's 10 millimeters or one centimeter thick in total, which is a 0.2 thicker than the regular one, I believe. It has the quintessential asymmetric dial layout with the hours and minutes in a sub dial. On the left-hand side of the dial, around 9 o'clock, the seconds around what would be 5 o'clock normally, power reserve around 3 o'clock, and then the big date, which is quintessentially German, at 2 o'clock, let's say, between 1 and 2 o'clock, up there in the top right-hand quadrant. And this all-gold look with black markings is just the most deliciously 1990s thing I could think of. It normally comes on a brown strap, I have seen it worn on a full gold bead of rice bracelet, which is just pure 1990s heaven. And if you ever see one of these come up for auction, expect these days to pay, well, at least six figures. I think the highest one ever went for was around 240000 um, but they are all over the map depending on when they come up for sale. So yeah, keep an eye out for an absolute classic. There was only 100 pieces made in 1998, but to me it is... Um, just the most 1990s version of the most important watch off the 1990s. So that is my answer, the Langer 1A112.021. Actually, amazing pick. I apologize to our listeners that we are so Germanic and that we love Glashütte so much. Why are you apologizing? I don't know. I mean, I moved here, for God's sake. You actually did. And it it is uh, the reason we met. So uh, it's full circle. Um, Actually, interesting to hear. Um, I have a very interesting question for you as a watchmaker. The speedy shutter, that's his hand on Instagram, sent a DM. So, service needs. His question is, let your watch rest or keep it wound? So, is it this or the other? Very good question. He continues, I hear a lot of people claim that watch winders are good because it keeps the oils from coagulating. But, just as often I hear that the teeth on the winding mechanism, automatic or not, is the part that wears out the first on watch movements. So Rob, yay or nay for watch winders? As I often do, I'm going to answer this question slightly backwards. Uh, Thanks to the Speedy Shutter, a dedicated follower of the show and uh, a great supporter. So thank you for this question. It's a very common question, a very common question. You know, you would expect any mailbag to have several iterations of this question in it because it is something people discuss ad nauseum. I would say to the latter point, the teeth on the winding mechanism 
wear out earlier than other components in a watch. It's not untrue. I would say one of the most finicky components in an automatic winding mechanism are the reversing wheels, which take quite a bit of skill uh, to be correctly lubricated. And even when done so properly, can still jam up or foul on one another over time and cause all manner of issues. If you've ever noticed an automatic watch windmilling, as we call it, when you wind the movement manually and the rotor weight takes off like a helicopter blade and it feels like the watch is about to shake itself to bits, what's happening generally is the reverses are jamming and sending that rotor flying around your movement unnecessarily. So there is some truth in it being a potential weak spot in the watch. But when it comes to this winding question, I would say, think of a car. You wouldn't leave a car running on your driveway just to keep the engine well lubricated. Conversely, of course, you also shouldn't leave your car sitting there cold for months on end, as I have done since I left England and left my beautiful car my beautiful car, my beautiful smart 4.4, sitting there all alone on the road because the engine has seized up on more than one occasion because it it does lose out um, when not used regularly. So So as unsatisfactory an answer as this may be, the correct route, I would say, is a mixture of both. Now, I personally don't advocate watch winders. I think they are not uh, snake oil, but I'd say... uh, just a fancy way to you know spend your money and quite unnecessary if you have a watch collection that is able to be rotated relatively regularly on your wrist and off i would say just wear your watches um every so often don't leave the crown open don't put them on a winder just lay them down in a safe space Uh, preferably nowhere too hot because that is something that can have a negative effect on synthetic oils. Um, I don't think it's necessary to keep your watches in the fridge, but just just so you know, we do keep synthetic watch oils in the fridge before we apply them to watches. So I suppose keeping them in a, a cooler rather than warmer environment makes sense. You do find when watches have been in shop windows for a long time, even if they're Running one of the biggest problems is the baking and coagulation of oil or the fact that it, it sort of balls up and then chips off and makes its way around and movement to places it shouldn't be. So I'd say uh, a keen mixture of wearing and not wearing. And if you find as a result of this that you don't wear certain watches enough to keep them in good running order, then perhaps sell them and make way for something else in your collection that you do wear often enough to keep ticking over nicely. What's your experience of it, Alan? Uh, I mean, I guess you get asked this question from people coming into the store quite a lot, you know, when they're buying maybe even their first automatic watch and they want to know good maintenance. What do you tell them? Good one. So, yeah, we sell a lot of watch winders. So my advice is usually, indeed, buy it because you want the comfort of not to have to set the time or date, and especially on perpetual calendars. Do it for that. Don't do it like you said, because it's good for the movement. So it's convenience. And and actually what I what I liked hearing in your story or feedback is it's in good it's a good test. So if you feel that your watch doesn't get enough rotation, then maybe you should consider letting it go. That could be a test. I'm not saying you should, but that could be a good test. So yeah. And 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 
For those that are wondering, are there winders for mechanical hand-wound watches? They exist as well. So I do not recommend them. I tell people not to buy them. Um, but yeah, so do it for the convenience. Um, good ones out there, I think, are Swiss Q because you can program them. I guess majority of the movements, they need to spin one direction and at a particular rotation. Um, but you can program them for different calibers. And a tip I always give people, do not put a watch on there that's not fully wound. Because usually watch winders are programmed to keep them at a particular energy level. And they're not there to wind up your watch. So if you didn't put them on fully wound, they will start running less precisely. Okay, Rob. So that was my answer. Um, let's see. Now, my buddy Rocky from Amsterdam on Signal, he sent me an app message. Very simple one and a good one. Can you explain what the success of Rolex is? Oh. Good grief. Um, we call it this simple now. I mean, it's, uh, it, <laughs> as you like to say, it's, it's the kind of question that could spawn a whole show. But I think it can be answered quite simply. And um, it's all to do with timing, ironically. Rolex was in the right place at the right time. And it made the most of its opportunities while it was there. Hans Wilsdorf was no doubt a visionary when it came to what the future of wristwatches should look like and his efforts to create the first water-resistant, shall we say, um, automatic wristwatch um, did reap the rewards he imagined they might. Establishing a new standard for watch-making excellence at that time and then consolidating that reputation with creative and hitherto unseen marketing activations, such as the Mercedes Gleitscher swim across the channel, or not quite fully across the channel, but far enough with a Rolex strapped around her neck to impress people the world over and to still be so impressive that Rolex trots out that newspaper article to this day. Uh, is what made the difference. And it wasn't just that. It wasn't just the Oyster Perpetual um, it watches with the oyster case and the perpetual movements. It was also that incredible run of design supremacy in the 1950s. I mean, the 1950s was probably the most influential decade of watch design, not just in Rolex's history, but in, in many, especially Omega's as well. But we saw so many classics come out of the brand then, classics that have persisted to this day. And uh, really, as we look at the modern designs, in comparison to their progenitors, it expresses your favorite statement, your favorite mantra for the Rolex brand, right, Alon? Which is, you want to say it? <laughs> no, no, you can say it. I want to see if you're paying attention. <laughs> I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention. I hear it. So the modern Rolex models show that Rolex places emphasis on evolution, not revolution of design. And it is that conservatism, that incredible resilience to outside influence that has made Rolex the uh, 
unassailable leader in the minds of especially the non-watch buying public when it comes to watchmaking excellence. Your turn. Well, you stole my thunder, but I'm happy to hear that you actually listen to me. Um, so I guess that that we both agree with you. Though. So, but in incepting the brand, Wolfsdorf wanted to make the best watches out there and therefore created some innovation. I guess the innovation is not so much there anymore but their pursuit of perfection is kind of innovative because on this massive scale of industrialization it's amazing what quality they produce and what uh, level of quality they can maintain and i think it's very important to mention also the level of after sales service um i think that's that's a very important key success factor why they are in the top 100 of most world-renowned brands. And I'm talking all brands, not watch brands only. Um, and, 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 and you could use a metaphor that they are the Porsche Carrera 911 car of the watch industry. They do slight design updates and quality upgrades and material upgrades but it stays the same so they're evergreens they're literally evergreens they're maybe the epitome of evergreens in the watch industry um so yeah i think that's what the success is rocky but i would love to hear what you think is the success of rolex and why you actually buy their watches and multiple ones of them Rob, next question comes from another Amsterdam citizen, Edouard Boer, friend of the show. He asks, what is your view on Casio limited edition pieces and or collabs? Oh, what is my view on Casio limited edition pieces and collabs? That's a, that's a good one. Well, I, I like them in general. I have a few. I have the Budweiser collab, because I like beer. I uh, Actually, the reason why I have that one is because it, it reminds me of a Coca-Cola yo-yo that I had in the 90s. You know, when uh, Coca-Cola branding was everywhere in the early 90s, and you had it on caps and T-shirts and skateboards and whatever. There was a, a yo-yo available that I saved up my pocket money for and, and had. and It was red and white plastic, really cheap looking. And this Budweiser collaboration is also pretty cheap looking. Um, and it comes in a, a Budweiser can case, which is hilarious. And it was a limited edition with hmm, Bodega, I think, a little uh, boutique fashion house in um, in New York. And I managed to get one. I have the Gorillas sneakers, sneakers, yeah, sneakers, sneakers. yeah, they, yeah, they do, they do some good sneakers. I uh, got the Gorillas collab, the Bamford collab. Uh, I had a couple more, and they've escaped me. Um, I think that they're great fun. I think they're a wonderful way to expand the presence of watchmaking into other fields of fashion or design or anything really, because there's been collabs with athletes, there's been collabs with musicians, there's been collabs with 
major multinational producers of something like beer, for example, it's it's great. There's been collaborations with airlines. There's been all sorts. And so I really, 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 really love it on that, from that perspective. The one thing that I would like to see more, uh, and this comes from my time at Fratello, is more respect paid to those within the watch industry itself. Now, Casio are very particular about who they work with. And oftentimes they are very focused on tapping into new markets that aren't their core base because they're trying to expand their reach and their profile. And that is perfectly understandable. And I wouldn't advocate that they do anything different in that regard, but I would advocate that they pay a little bit more attention to those at home and give special edition models to media outlets like Fratello, like Time and Tides, like SJX, like, well, we know Hadinki's got them already, which is why it's frustrating for the other media outlets to not have them because there shouldn't be any reason why they shouldn't have one themselves. All the big ones, like a blog to watch, you could just imagine like a beautiful dark gray, a blog to watch classic G-Shock square with the ABTW logo printed on the strap. I would love that. I think, you know, Ariel could rock that. It would look, it would be a great thing for the team to wear as ambassadors for that brand as well. So I'd like to see that a little bit more often, but all in all, of all the brands and of all the limited edition conversations that we can have in the watch industry and of all the cross-industry collaborations there are, Casio and its G-Shock line is, I think, the best place to make the most of that and to just keep going. So yeah, by and large, I am I am totally behind it. I'd just like to see a little bit more. That's amazing. You actually own quite a few. Um, cool to hear. Um, actually, this is a call to action for all our listeners. If you don't own a G-Shock, go get one. There's so much fun. I think you can grab them for 100, definitely for 200 euros, dollars, whatever currency. Even less. If if you don't want, uh, if you're not bothered about a collaboration or a special edition, like G-Shock Squares start at around 70 bucks. You can get them, like if you're in the UK, for example, there's a, a really good shop that has loads of options. Watch shop. .co.uk, I think it is very simple, and they are a Casio stockist, and everything's always available there for like forty percent below retail. I bought my best friend his first watch there, and I got him a Casio G-Shock in dark green uh, just before he joined the army, and uh, he wears it every day. It's the only watch he's got. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. And 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 when people think it's only sexy plexi or plastic, um, they also make steel ones. But personally. I recommend either go for the OG, and which I think was the DW5000 series, and then that's the more squarish one, and then or the 5600, and then you have the, um, yeah, what shape is it? It's round-ish. I don't even know what to call it. It's the DW6000 series, so the 6900, for example. If you don't know where or with what to start, and and go for awesome plastic ones. Um, so I have owned many, I've lost many, I've rebought many. We retailed it. We don't retail it anymore. I had the honor to visit several factories and HQ in Japan. So G-Shock and Casio, which technically are two separate brands, and 
I have said it to the full management team with a translator in between because they didn't speak English, that I highly recommend them to consider splitting Jishok from Casio, which I've said the same to Psycho and Grand Psycho, which Grand Psycho has done two years ago, I think. But G-Shock still has not. I think um, it was more like five or six years ago now, wasn't it? Like 2017? Wasn't it that long ago that they split? Maybe, but I think Grand Cycle only announced it a few years ago, but I'm not sure. But anyways, it's it's it took them 60 years, I guess, to come to that decision. So they have a different view in Japan, which is cool as well. But a lot of people get confused by it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with even the lower end. G-Shock's the 80 vibe in gold colored or steel colored with these uh, thin metal bands and you can pick them up even for 30 euros who didn't have a calculator watch or a tv remote watch in the 80s and 90s right talking about cool 90s design Wouter, this one is a shout out to you the 90s casio watches were cool um and i'm not even opposed to the they call them the the, the casio oaks uh which are octogonal new G-Shocks, which are both Anadigi, which is analog hands and digital screens. Not so much connected or smart, but also cool. They have one in black with a rainbow indexes, which my buddy picked up. Very cool piece as well. Just fun. So I wear them when I either go workout or just when I need to do some heavy lifting moving or little chores around the house you know i'd love to see casio do a special edition maybe a, a cassie oak because it has the second hand with second second yeah you know romara country yeah. that would be cool as hell i, would, I think yeah. that would sell out in a heartbeat i would love to do a real-time show special edition uh with him and casio but i i get the feeling casio would uh would probably not want to do anything like i say that they're, they're very hadinky focused when it comes to watch media at this time. Hopefully that'll change. And the big boys, uh, our, our colleagues, our peers in the watch media sphere are first in line. And uh, yeah, I hope that that comes to pass sooner rather than later because we could all do with a little more Casio G-Shock special edition in our lives. Yeah, I agree. And I hope they will do uh, a bit more with not just lifestyle brands, but indeed with the hardcore community. The John Mayer was cool. The Bamford was cool. So shout out to both of them and uh, Castro for doing that. I unfortunately snoozed on all of these, um, <laughs> but I would like them. Um, I, I have, I think, a, a bathing ape one. Um, and actually my favorite one is the Mudmaster. And especially because I had the honor to meet the designer in Japan, which is amazing, the, the philosophy behind making that watch. No way. But... Yeah, that was super cool. You know, I have the last three iterations of the Mudmaster. I love it. Really? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so I have the military green one. That's the, that's the OG one of, of the current modern version, which is literally you can push all the push, pushes in the mud. That's why it's called Mudmaster, guys. Um, Rob, we have time for one or two more? All right, so we have a bank of questions from one of our most active listeners dadutch collection on instagram and i'm going to pull one from the bank and he asks or he says because if you remember from previous episodes dutch likes to uh, just make statements <laughs> almost like poetic statements and then we have to interpret exactly what he wants to know from them i don't even know if we get anywhere near what he wants most of the time but we're doing our best okay so dutch says 
the vintage allure and why cool isn't the same as fairly or even remotely good. Now, I'm going to interpret this through a personally biased lens, of course. And I think what he's asking is, okay, so why are vintage watches cool? Why do people go after old watches when that coolness isn't actually as good, isn't actually as practically positive as a modern watch? So, for example... Yeah, vintage watches, they're cool, but oftentimes they are poorly made with bad materials, um, totally unsavable. You know, they've gone past the point of service or refinishing, and yet still people hunt them down, still people want them. So, Alon, you you know a little bit more about the vintage market than I do, so I think this is a good one for you to take the lead on. Thank you. So, And thank you, Da Dutch Collection, for your awesome statements that we distill questions out of. Um, I guess, and I'm coming from a collector's point of view when answering this now, is because you can't get something similar in new. Although, in the last five plus years, there was a boom in retro and neo-vintage and vintage-inspired, and, and that's awesome and cool. But still, let's take a watch that's very identical to a vintage one, so a new one. They hardly will use Plexi on new watches, so they'll hollow out sapphire glass to make it look like it's a plexiglass, right, which is more domed and sits higher and doesn't really need a bezel a lunette technically um but it doesn't look and feel the same if you don't know what i mean if what i mean walk into any dealer that has an omega speedmaster in stock ask to see the sexy plexi one and the double sapphire one so the same watch one has a plexiglass and one has sapphire both on top and bottom that's why it's called double sapphire and then you'll know what i mean if you still don't know what i mean hold them up on eye level and then curve them a bit and see what the reflection does and then bring them down again and look what happens to everything on the dial. And then you understand what it, it gives you a different vibe. Um, the rarity obviously has a effect on price, right? Because since they're not produced anymore, obviously prices can come down, but usually if they're wanted, they'll go up. Um, and yeah, I, I've I've mentioned this several times on air. I love, love, love vintage watches. And I have many of them, but I can't wear one the same one a full week because there's they're they're more shaky, they're less sturdy, and I love a well-made piece. So I do understand that brands today, let's say smaller brands or the high volume ones can't make hardcore one-on-one replicas because simply they don't have the tooling or they can't make it for the price that they are functioning in or with. Um, But they are made more sturdy in quality. And that, I think, is the success of vintage-inspired modern watches. Um, I hope that answers the question. Rob, I'm very curious to hear what you feel about this topic uh yeah well i'm not a vintage hunter generally speaking ironically i am wearing a uh, omega speedmaster mark 4 on my wrist today which is 
Yeah, I mean, I love it because I love the central minute chronograph. And this one was, it wasn't completely box fresh, but it was unworn. Um, I bought it from Balage from Fratello um, after a drunken night out in Calzu, and I don't regret it at all. Since then, I have taken it out of its box and worn it and put a couple of dings into it. Um, but effectively, this was a new watch. So that doesn't really qualify for Dutch's question. I I certainly agree with what you said about the success of vintage reissues and why they are meeting with such acclaim. And I support their reissue for exactly that reason, because I think there are a great many beautiful designs in the past that I would like to see realized with modern manufacturing techniques. For some people, though, the authenticity, the life lived by the watch before it hit their wrist, that genuine history, heritage, a time capsule perhaps of the industry at that time is more important than an unscratched, unblemished case and dial. And that's fair enough entirely. Anything that gets anybody into watchmaking or excites them or stokes their passion is a good thing in my mind. And there are customers that are entirely dedicated to vintage for all manner of reasons. Some of the ones I listed and also, of course, because you can get some really good bargains when models fall out of favor. And there are some that are just entirely focused on new models, and that's also okay. So I would say that to answer Dutch's question as directly as I can, or his statement that we molded into a question, I would say vintage watches offer certain intangibles that new watches don't. And sometimes for some people, those intangibles matter more than the black and white specs on the page. And that is where we're going to wrap it up today. That was a very fun show full of enthusiasm and great questions that seem to lead quite organically into one another and hopefully we'll have just as much fun in our next Q&A session which might be delayed slightly because we have another product review on the horizon so watch out for that next Tuesday we'll be back again on Thursday of course with another interview if you would like to get in touch with us and take part in these interactive episodes you can contact me on Instagram at Rob Nuds that's R O B N U D D S or you can contact Alon at Alon Ben Joseph. That's A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Otherwise, you can contact us directly via email at either rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.